0: Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honoured in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you, for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now here, that I still have. That's wonderful reading and we'll be look at it uh, in a moment. We'll let the children go and uh, meet in that group and then we'll resume. we have prayed and let's look at the Bible and let's look at Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 to 30 and let's come asking this question, what do you think is the most successful business in the world today. Uh, That might give you a bit of a prompt. I think a lot of people would say uh, the great Apple empire is expanding. This week they have launched the new iPhone 7 and the new Apple Watch 2, which you can drown it will still live. Uh, In other words, the big statement that comes from America this week is that uh, the Great Apple Corporation is growing, (laughs) it's here to stay, it is a great success. What is the least successful business in the world? Uh, The business where the market share is in steep decline? The business where there's uh, infighting in the organisation. The business where the number of paid staff have to be reduced to try and make ends meet. What uh, business comes to mind? Might it be the church? Fits that bill, doesn't it? Well, that's how you pick up the message as you walk in this evening, this week I want you to listen to a different message, I want to listen to the Apostle Paul tonight because I want you to go out of that door tonight with a very different perspective and with a whole new purpose to strive for and we're going to see that as we look at God's project first and then we're going to look at our purpose second, with me so far? Let's look at God's project first and uh, we'll see what it is in verse 12. You can uh, see it there. God's project is to advance the gospel. Everything that's happened that Paul is going to tell us about is there to advance the gospel. And you see how the graph is going up and the graph continues to grow up through the different things that Paul mentions. First, it grows through confinement, it goes through that. Paul's in prison in verse 13, he tells you that, uh, and he says that uh, everyone knows my imprisonment is for Christ. So he is in prison. He's in prison to keep him quiet, but he's in prison with the whole of the Roman imperial guard, which in mission speak, probably would be the most unreached people group of his time. And I've been in the army, so I know how soldier banter works. My guess is that a guard probably started all off by walking and saying, so, uh, prisoner, what have you done to annoy the emperor? And the rest is evangelism, because the whole Praetorium Guard begins to find out he's there for Christ, in verse 13. All the rest know that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's his crime, he's there for Christ, for speaking about him, but that's also his mission, he's there for Christ, to speak about him. So you can almost imagine him telling the Roman soldier and asking his question, actually Jesus put me here to speak to you. And therefore, God's advancing the gospel. He can't be confined. And the gospel goes through evening confinement. It also happens through conviction. In verse 14, you can see there are some people who are now more confident, convinced, and the gospel is going out because of that. So Paul's Christian friends in Philippi haven't been put off by the fact that he's in prison. They've got more confident. Now, Think about that. Because Paul would have taught them before, surely, to speak the word without fear when he was there with them. But why are they doing it more confidently now? Isn't it true that actually there are some lessons that are better taught by example than in a classroom? And they love his passion in verse 16. And they have become passionate as well. Passionate people bring about passion, don't they? And if you're passionate enough to go to prison for Jesus, then that makes it attractive for me to live for him as well. So... The gospel projects, uh, goes through uh, conviction. And it also goes through the barrier of competition. Because it sounds like there's another group in verse 15 where there's envy and rivalry with uh, Paul. In verse 17, there is selfish ambition in that group. They want to show that they are hardcore as well. And they can do better than Paul. I mean, there's Paul, the great evangelist. He's going nowhere. He's in prison. But they're going everywhere. They're doing a better job. They are the success story, not Paul. Now, you want to know why, how there might be a group of church people thinking like that. Because they are church people. Paul includes them in that... uh, title of brothers that he gives them in verse 14 They're two brothers in verse 14 apply to both groups so why is it there are some of Paul's brothers who want to cause him affliction that's what they do some want to afflict me at the end of verse 17 why is it they want to do that why don't they like him Here's my suggestion. Paul is Marmite. Uh, You love him or you hate him. That's actually true of the church today. And I'll tell you how that's true of the church today. Maybe later if you ask me during question times. Stick that down in the notes to ask a question. I'm planting that in your mind. But Paul is Marmite to the two groups of people who are there in every single church who were there at the time of Jesus. And the two groups that were in the time of Jesus and are in the church in every place the Pharisees and the tax collectors. The Pharisees, if you know the Bible stories, are the people who want to do things by their own effort. The tax collectors are the ones that are humbly dependent on God. And Paul pushes humility we'll see that next week if you come back and we look at chapter 2 and Paul talks about the great humility of uh, becoming like the Lord Jesus to be very attractive for us to hear and then in chapter 3 Paul writes a whole chapter that tells you that human effort is something that gets nowhere but these guys believe that you serve God by pulling out the stops and therefore they want to show that their method of serving God is actually better than Paul's method of serving God because he's languishing in prison and they are the ones who are going places, meeting people, doing things being impressive. That will show that Paul's got it wrong. They've got it right. But Paul's rejoicing in verse 18. Actually if you look at verse 18 he is really rejoicing. It's mentioned twice And that I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. This is really great. Because this is God's project. It is advancing, nothing can stop it. And it is the most successful operation in the world. Now, it will happen behind the scenes in prison as well as on the streets with uh, people who love Paul. It will happen with bad motives and with good motives. It will happen in pretense. Or in truth. But it'll happen. The graph will keep going up. And therefore, we come on the second point. If this is God's project, then it shows us... Hello. Uh, grab a seat. You've got one in the front. Okay. Uh, the gospel project is therefore the one project that we can make our major purpose in life. Let's go and have a look at that. What is our major purpose? Sorry, forgot to ask about the rejoicing. But what's the major purpose? The purpose in verse 27 is to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Can you see that? You only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, said, whether I come to see you or, or absent, I hear that you are standing firm with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is the thing that I really want you to take in. Paul is writing to a bog standard church, he is not writing to an elite core of evangelists. And is telling ordinary Christians stand strive side by side for the faith of the gospel you ordinary believer strive side by side for the faith of the gospel give it absolutely everything verse 27 tells you that only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ In other words, all of my life is about one purpose. To make the gospel attractive. Do nothing else next week. Cancel all appointments. Do nothing else. You say, but I'm not a minister. Do you not hear me? This is not written to ministers. This is written to an ordinary church. Do nothing else next week apart from make Jesus and his gospel attractive. A Christian is not someone who goes to church. A Christian who, when he's outside church, makes the gospel attractive. Because he's been to church, there is a connection. But that is our purpose. And we do that all the time. A man was once asked, so what do you do? He said, I'm a Christian. He said, I didn't ask you what religion you were. I asked you what you did. He said, I'm a Christian. He said, are you a minister then? No, I'm a Christian. So what do you do? What job do you do? He said, I'm a Christian. But I pack uh, sausages to pay expenses. Now, we may not say something perhaps quite as cheesy as that to people who ask us what we do, but it ought to be what we're thinking. My purpose in life is to make Jesus attractive. What do you do? I make Jesus attractive. But but, 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 but what job do you do? I, I make Jesus attractive. Oh, and you might do something else to pay expenses. First point. Our life is to make Jesus attractive. Second way we do that, it is connected with that, choose what is best for the church. Now, I'm only saying that because Paul makes his life or death decisions in this passage to serve the church in Philippi. He's happy with death, if that's what it comes to. He can see advantages. He talks about gain in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Instead, we've got to be careful how we sound like him because most people who, when they say they're happy to die, normally are fed up with life and therefore they feel suicidal. And when Christians read the bad headlines and think, you know, I've had enough, uh, beam me up, Scotty. Um, Well you can understand why our family might get worried Mm -hmm. because people who talk like that are normally slightly uh, uh, wrong in the head but for Paul let me put it like this death is not empty of pain it is full of a person For me to die is Christ, to live is Christ, to die is gain, because I will be with Christ. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, he says uh, in verse 23. So he is not thinking empty suffering, he's thinking full of a person. Now again we might scratch our heads and say, how is it that we can think about death? and find it attractive because of a person. And I appreciate that's really hard, especially since we haven't met this person. But then Paul hasn't met him either. But if you look at the evidence of the people who did meet him when he was here, let me tell you, the people who were with Jesus at the time would have given anything for five minutes with him for the effect he had in their lives the huge transforming effect he had now if people would give anything to have five minutes with him you can understand why Paul would want eternity with him and so that's what he asked for more than anything else Jesus is the magnet death if you like is a doorway and therefore is gain. But linked with that, our purpose to make Jesus attractive is therefore to choose what's best for the church. Because when Paul says, I don't know whether it will be better for me to go and be with Christ or to remain and be with you, in verses 23 and 24, when he has to make the choice, he says, I don't know which one to choose, but I know what I'll choose. I'll choose what's best for my brothers and sisters in Philippi. And so he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. So convinced of this, I'm convinced i remain. So the choice (coughs) is to stay with the Philippians and serve them. That's his guiding principle in life. What's best for my church? How shall I spend my time? on a Sunday, so many different demands, what's best for my church? How do I handle with this particular temptation that I'm wrestling with? Well, what's best for my church? Where might I live? What's best for my church? Whenever you have a how do, what do I choose question, whenever you have a what do I choose question, answer it by saying, what's best for my church? Paul makes life or death decisions on that basis. It's part of our purpose to make Jesus attractive. But then thirdly, as we want to make Jesus attractive serving what's best the church, there is one last thing, which is to see suffering as a gift. Look at verse 29 and read it very carefully. It says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, granted to you, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That sounds really odd, doesn't it? Because it sounds like suffering is a gift. So that just as faith has been granted to you, that's a gift. So, suffering's been granted to you as well. What's good about a gift like that? Well, I want to explain it like this. Suffering is God's way of marking out the people who take his word seriously. In our part of Dagnum, I don't know about yours, um, it might say something about... Our part of Dagnum, if it's not happened to you in yours, is we've got signs everywhere saying that the police have put smart water on our stuff, so that if anyone comes into a house and nicks it, then the police will be able to trace that property back to its owner. I want you to know that that is actually what's happened in house in our area, because you look like a shifty lot and I want you to keep away. <laughs> okay it's the smart water that marks our property you can trace it back to its owner well if I could put it like this suffering is the smart water God puts on his people to show these are the authentic owned by God people in the world you see personal belief that God gives you is an invisible thing but suffering is like the special light that shows that what is in a person is authentic and the reason I think it might work is like this if you are an authentic believer in line with God's word then there are two questions you'd be very clear about in your mind one is that everybody in the world deserves to go to hell two that anyone in the world can be saved by Jesus Christ that is the bedrock of authentic belief. Now, if you believe those two things deeply that everyone deserves hell, but anyone can be saved from hell, if you believe those things deeply, then if someone asks you ultimately what you believe as a Christian, you will have to say the H word at some time. Mm-hmm. And the H-word will always provoke a reaction. You don't have to be rude, you don't have to be personal, you don't have to be direct and say, you are going to hell, and be obnoxious like that. Now, however innocuously you say it, it may even be a little sentence like this, I never really thought about hell that much until I went to church and read the Bible. You're not making any personal attacking comment on anyone. But it will provoke a reaction. Your card will be marked. See, just to say that you believe in God, no one minds. You can talk about going to church, They might think you're different but not necessarily bad. You can talk about how you enjoy services. You can talk about how you meet nice people. Nothing will provoke any adverse reaction until you talk about the biggie which is the biggest thing that Jesus did for you was to rescue you from hell. If you believe that and say it the world will mark you off as an authentic believer but the marking won't be that comfortable so the big question is is that your banner headline belief because if you say that God has done that for you you'd be in the firing line Now, Paul is certainly happy to mention the H word. Actually, it's a D word for him. In verse uh, 28, he he refers to that as destruction. But please don't think that it's just the Apostle Paul that he uses language like that. In verse 30, this is not Apostle speak. The same conflict is experienced by every believer. The scale will be different but the experience will be the same. Now, what can we take home from those things? I want to suggest that uh, uh, these three things might be helpful to different groups. First, if you're new to Christian things. I don't know what sales pitch you've heard from Christians in the past, but I wonder if uh, anyone's ever mentioned hell there you are, I've said it, I've come out with the H word I've crossed uh, uh, the pain barrier but you can understand why people don't want to talk about it because it's not easy for us to talk about it, we don't particularly want to like to but I want to suggest to you that if you love someone deeply that will be the reason why it comes into the conversation you see i hate the word cancer but if i go to a doctor and i've got cancer i'd rather he tells me that that is a problem rather than talk about other things when my father had cancer and the doctor leant over his desk and said i'm very sorry mr reeds but you have got uh, cancer um, but we are going to do our best to treat you. We've got the very best hospital and look after you. My father had a reason to go to the place for cure. If it said, actually, the hospital says very good food, which it did, I don't think my father would have gone. My mother's a pretty decent cook. If he uh, uh, <clears throat> said, you tried the hospital, the bed's really comfortable. Yeah, they were but he was happy with the one he had at home. It's when he realized he had that life-threatening problem that he had a reason to go for the remedy. And when we lovingly expose people and diagnose the real difficulty that uh, is there in their lives, that's the point at which we can talk about the remedy that Jesus can save anyone better than the doctor can now my friends that is something that is authentic belief you can see that if we really love someone that is the best we would want for them so would you please simply ask Jesus to save you from hell would you do it now because that is our greatest need. I know it doesn't feel like it's your greatest need any more than my dad felt he had cancer. He felt fine, the results were conclusive. Now my friend, isn't it logical to think that God, if there is a God, will know us better than we know ourselves and will know what we need better than we know ourselves? And he says this, and he provides the remedy and the cure. Then it's important, isn't it? That uh, we uh, ask him to grant us faith. But it will mean that he will also grant us suffering. Because other people will think we've become Christians for the wrong reason, and they're taking it too uh, far. What happens if you've already got, if I can put it like this, a church passport? And possibly your church passport has been stamped by many churches because you've been around the place. Let me ask you a question. I'd love you to be honest. Is your faith authentic? Is it real? Because normally you go to churches, and what's the general feel that it tries to create? What's the postcard most churches want you to write home if you were on holiday with them? We're having a lovely time. And most churches, the message is simply this uh, for you, it has been granted for you to believe and for you to be greatly blessed, maybe even with prosperity. That's the offer but you can see it's a different gospel isn't it to verse 29 where it has been granted to you to believe but also to suffer for his sake now my friends has suffering marked you out as an authentic believer because if it's just church services it may be that that hasn't happened yet And I want to suggest to you that if this has been a matter that has completely escaped your attention in the past, then one of the really important things, I think, people from other churches, if I can say, with a full stabbed church passport, when they come to the Bible, let me say that it is very important to unlearn certain things that we've learnt in the past. Before we can learn what God tells us in Scripture, and it may be that if you for, if you want authentic faith, that unlearning needs to happen first, and then with humility start learning what a genuine faith is like. Paul will teach you. And what happens if I say? Let me just uh, stick that on there. Uh, are you authentic? <laughs> Or to ask the question a different way. Have you suffered because you're a Christian? Not because <clears throat> you drive back and you've got parking fines. No, I don't mean that. Yeah, suffered as a Christian. And then lastly, it may be you're a real believer. It's another way of saying uh, you are someone who has experienced conflict and rejection because you have followed Jesus if that is the case are we saying tonight that from now on the rest of your life is going to be miserable that you're not going to be a happy bunny because people are going to in the end uh, be distance from you because of what you believe my friend i'm not saying that this is the key to misery i'm saying this is the key to rejoicing. This is why we are able as a church to rejoice, really rejoice, to have real joy that the gospel fruit is absolutely growing everywhere. This is the only success story in town. It's not Steve Jobs, it's not Apple, it's not any other up-and-coming. This is the one story that will be marked out as the greatest all-time success story when we get into eternity and look back. This is the graph that is going up. And you can understand why. It would be right to say that. Paul wrote this uh, um, letter in Philippi in a prison with a Roman imperial guard and who knows how many numbers in um, uh, in um, uh, in Philippi itself So there's that lorry revving up outside it'd be really quite nice if Charles could go out and lob a hand grenade at it um, uh, we don't carry them anymore uh, but uh, yeah so who knows how many Christians there were around in Paul's day. But Philippi started with three people. This church started with uh, a small number. And look at what is happening. The fact that God has reached Dagnum, not just the outskirts of the Roman empire, but now right across (coughs) the world, tells you that this is the project to live for and if necessary to die for so give yourself to it do nothing else this week apart from make the Lord Jesus attractive (coughs) make decisions that are best for your church and ultimately be willing to suffer because that is where you are proved to be authentic as you strive side by side for the faith of the gospel on our estate that's what paul wants us to do and that's how we ask god's help as we seek to do it what we normally do is give a minute people private prayer and uh, it may be in that time if you're someone who's not a christian It could be a time, couldn't it, that you ask God to please rescue you from hell, to give you that faith, and if necessary, to suffer for him. Uh, Pray in that uh, little message. If you're someone who's a a church uh, um, connoisseur, it might be just uh, praying that uh, your faith would be authentic rather than just uh, churchy. And it may be that if you're someone who's uh, a Christian, that you have a new cause to rejoice in and a new cause to get behind. Well, take a minute to pray, and then I'll close, and we have questions and answers after that. Let's take a moment to pray. let me pray our heavenly father we thank you that uh, everything sees the advancement of the gospel opposition obedience even division so please help us to give ourselves to making the Lord Jesus attractive to do what's best for our church in the choices we make and to see it as reassuring when suffering comes because we believe the Lord Jesus is wonderful to rescue us from hell and one day to be with him forever please fill us with that joy we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord Oh man